Welcome back to Historically Inaccurate, Wholesome Heritage Moments with Mix. That's me, I'm Mix. I'm back with another season and an actual plan of attack. Isn't that thrilling? I came up with the theme of this season while thinking about one of my favorite Canadian political moments. Yes, I have a favorite Canadian political moment. Don't lie, we all do. It's the one where Jean Chrétien got pied in the face. It got me thinking about great Canadian scandals. Canada isn't really synonymous with scandal the way that other countries are. We don't have a Watergate or anything like that. But what we do have is just as ridiculous as you would guess from a country where geese hold us hostage. This season is going to span over 134 years from Confederation to the New Millennium, looking at some of Canada's most absurd and interesting political scandals. We're also going to dive into some Canadian history along the way and maybe learn some things or at least get a refresher from grade 9 social studies. We're going to kick off this first episode with the very first major post-Confederation political scandal in Canada, the Pacific Scandal, where Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, and senior members of his cabinet were accused of accepting election funds from shipping magnate Sir Hugh Allen in exchange for the contract to build the Canadian Pacific Railway, the CPR. But first, let's talk about John, shall we? Born on January 10th or 11th, 1815, record-keeping was lacking in the 1800s, in Glasgow, Scotland, John was brought to Kingston, Upper Canada, by his parents, Hugh MacDonald and Helen Shaw, when he was just five years old. Hugh ran multiple businesses in the area, and John was educated at the Midland District Grammar School, but he also attended a private school in Kingston where he learned rhetoric, Latin, Greek, arithmetic, grammar, and geography. John was only 15 years old when he began articling with a prominent Kingston lawyer. Lifespans were short back then. You had to work on your dreams before you barely entered puberty. By the age of 17, he was managing a branch legal office in Napanee by himself, and two years later, he opened his own law office in Kingston. By the age of 21, he was being called to the Law Society of Upper Canada. During John's early years as a lawyer, Upper Canada experienced an uprising that sought demands of democratic reform and an end to the rule of a privileged oligarchy. An oligarchy is when a small group of people have control over a country. I'm not assuming you didn't know that, I just want to make everyone feel included, in case you didn't know that. While the rebellion failed, it did help pave the way for political change in British North America and led to the eventual unification of Upper and Lower Canada into the province of Canada. John's entry into politics happened in 1843 when he became the alderman of Kingston, when he started taking an active interest in conservative politics. His pragmatic approach to politics won him his first cabinet position as receiver general in 1847. Later, he would be involved in the creation of a new political alliance, the Liberal Conservative Party. The Conservatives had already held an alliance with the Upper Canadian Reforms, but this new alliance brought both groups together with the French-Canadian majority political bloc, the Blues. 
McDonald made his way through the political ranks until he finally secured a joint premiership of the province of Canada with Etienne Pechel Tache. During this time, McDonald faced growing opposition in Canada West. You see, when Upper Canada and Lower Canada merged to create the province of Canada, it didn't actually create a unified country, they just kind of renamed things. Upper Canada became Canada West and Lower Canada became Canada East, creating two colonies under one parliament. Canada West was annoyed about the French-Canadian influence that seemed to be quite prominent in Macdonald's government. Macdonald ended up giving in, and in 1864, a new coalition of Conservatives, Clear Grits and Blues, were created to work together for constitutional change. And if you're like, Megan, who the hell were the Grits? They were a political party who were the basis for the future Liberal Party of Ontario. They were upper Canadian reformers who wanted free trade with the U.S. and took issue with French-Canadian influence. They got their name from politician David Christie, who said that they only wanted those in the party who were all sand and no dirt, clear grit all the way through. The coalition, along with Macdonald, played a key role in the Confederation of British North America in 1867, which created four new provinces, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, to form the Dominion of Canada. Macdonald was appointed the first Prime Minister of Canada on July 1st, 1867. He was also made Knight Commander of the Bath, which made him Sir John A. Macdonald. From 1867 to 1873, he became a nation builder, adding Manitoba, the Northwest Territories, not the ones you're thinking of. These were present-day Saskatchewan and Alberta, British Columbia, and PEI to the original four provinces. During this time, the Intercontinental Railway between Quebec City and Halifax had begun and plans were being made for a transcontinental railway to the Pacific Coast. And this is where we get to the Pacific Scandal. Not so shockingly, financial activities of political parties during the late 1800s weren't exactly regulated. In fact, up until 1897, both the Liberal and Conservative parties relied on corporate donations, which got them into quite a bit of trouble. British Columbia joined the Dominion of Canada under the promise that the Transcontinental Railway would be built within 10 years of them joining. The proposed rail line was 1,600 kilometers longer than the first American transcontinental line. The railway was going to cost quite a lot of money, which was especially concerning considering Canada only had around 3.5 million people at that time. Didn't really justify a railway of that size. Sir Hugh Allen was a Montreal shipping magnet and a railway builder who Macdonald and his party had targeted for a campaign donation for the 1872 general election. Allen donated more than $350,000 to their campaign, with part of that money coming from American financial backers. Macdonald won the election... Barely. The Conservatives managed to hold on to the vote, but with a greatly reduced majority government. After the election, Allen's company, the Montreal Ocean Steamship Co., which was also popularly known as the Allen Line, won the bid for the Canadian Pacific Railway. 
Allen's company had American control over their board of directors and the contract was given to him under the assumption he would remove that American control. McDonald didn't know that Allen had used American money to help fund the conservative campaign during the election. Now, if you're a prolific journaler or note-taker, then what happened next might make you rethink your documenting ways. Allen loved to write letters, and he kept detailed records of his correspondence with McDonald and his co-premier at the time, Sir George Etienne Cartier. In order to build the railway, Allen went to England to help secure funds, and he took with him his lawyer, John Abbott. This story is also a testament to the old adage, good help is hard to find. Abbott's private secretary, George Norris, stole incriminating letters that Allen had entrusted with Abbott that detailed an agreement between Allen, McDonald, and Cartier that he would make a large donation to their campaign in exchange for the railway contract. Norris sold the documents for $5,000, which is almost $12,500 today, to liberal opposition members. The news of the scandal broke in the House of Commons on April 2nd, 1873. In response to the accusations, McDonald claimed that his hands were clean because he had not personally profited from his association with Allen. McDonald didn't help himself, though, when, under his own personal admission, he stated that he couldn't remember periods of time during the 1872 election campaign or the negotiations with Allen. Apparently, McDonald was a heavy drinker and he was blackout drunk for the majority of the election. Days after the allegations hit the House of Commons, the McDonald government created a parliamentary committee to investigate the allegations of conflict of interest and corruption. It was this incident that would cause McDonald to moderate his drinking. That summer, liberal papers were rife with damaging letters and telegrams damning McDonald. One of the most shocking pieces of evidence was a telegram from McDonald to Abbott stating, I must have another 10,000. Will be the last time of calling. Do not fail me. Answer today. In another telegram, Allen had written to his American backers that he would be made president of the CPR on certain monetary conditions. The liberal opinion was that MacDonald had obtained money from a suspicious source and applied it to illegitimate purposes. Later that summer, it was pretty obvious that the committee's findings would implicate McDonald, and so, to give himself some time, he asked the Governor General to suspend Parliament. McDonald used the 10-week prorogation, which is a fancy word for suspension, to launch his own royal commission, which is basically just a traveling circus where government officials would do the bare minimum while investigating whatever issue they were tasked to investigate. By the time the House of Commons reconvened, multiple Conservative members of Parliament had left the party, with many of them joining opposition leader Alexander Mackenzie in his call for a vote of confidence. And if you're like, but Megan, what is a vote of confidence? 
It's a formal process where a legislative body votes in order to indicate whether or not they support a leader, party, etc. In this case, it would have been a vote for no confidence in McDonald's leadership ability. This was made worse for McDonald with the impending likelihood that the sparkly new province of PEI would also vote against the government. Foreseeing his future, McDonald requested a dissolution of Parliament on November 5th. Just in case you're not familiar, Canada's constitution limits the length of each parliament for five years, and at the end, parliament expires. Dissolving it would bring an end to parliament earlier and would trigger a new election. In McDonald's case, it was kind of like resigning from your job before they get a chance to fire you and ruin your reputation. Because of this mess, Allen never got the CPR contract and thus never became president of the CPR. In fact, one of McDonald's former party members, Donald Smith, would go on to become president of the CPR himself. He was most famously photographed driving the final spike into the railroad. And if you're like, who the heck is Donald Smith? You might know him better as Lord Strathcona. A new election was called for January 1874. The Liberals had been invited to create a new government with Alexander Mackenzie at the helm. They ended up forming a large majority government, winning 138 of the 206 seats. The scandal and loss of power hit Macdonald hard, but it hit Cartier even harder. He was at the center of the scandal with his written letter offering the railway contract to Allen. A month after the scandal broke, Cartier passed away on May 20th in London, England, where he was being treated for Bright's disease, a disease of the kidneys that is now more commonly referred to as acute or chronic nephritis. Cartier was just three months shy of his 69th birthday. After dissolving Parliament and stepping down as Prime Minister, Macdonald attempted to resign as the head of the Conservative Party, but they refused his resignation. In 1874, Canada was on the cusp of a business depression and Mackenzie's liberal government was gaining a reputation for being ineffectual. This opened up the floor for Macdonald to advocate for the readjustment of the tariff, which ultimately ended up being the policy that would help him return to power in 1878. McDonald's tariff policy was the basis for his national policy, which was a system that protected Canadian manufacturing by imposing high tariffs on imported goods. Anti-American sentiment was high after the War of 1812, which helped drive support for the policy. Ironically, McDonald's second administration saw the completion of the transcontinental CPR. He had awarded the new contract to a company headed by George Stephen, which required a government subsidy of $25 million, as well as 25 million acres of land. McDonald had to introduce legislation on two separate occasions to financially support the railway. And while very, very expensive, it did make future expansion of the West possible. It also leveraged the Indian Act of 1876 to take land away from Indigenous peoples in the name of colonization. I mean, MacDonald was the superintendent of Indian Affairs. That's what it was called then, not now. Which was the department that was responsible for holding Indigenous land and trust. So, yeah. He also played a role in the development of residential schools, in case you were wondering. 
If you've listened to my other podcasts, then you know that we've discussed the Chinese Immigration Act, otherwise known as the Chinese Exclusion Act. This act was passed during McDonald's tenure. Around 15,000 Chinese laborers helped build the CPR. They were paid very little to work in extremely dangerous conditions. It's estimated that at least 600 Chinese workers died during this time. Which isn't shocking considering they were given the most dangerous jobs. During this time, Canadian politicians were concerned about the influx of Chinese immigrant workers and the potential impact they would have on the economy and culture of Canada. McDonald vehemently defended their employment. Which is why McDonald's exclusion of those of Chinese origin from voting was somewhat shocking. The explanation was that they had no British instincts or British feelings or aspirations. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed the same year along with the head tax. While we may look at McDonald and call him a racist, we have to consider that at the time McDonald was actually viewed as being too moderate. The U.S., after all, had banned all Chinese immigration in 1882, so Canada was at least three years behind. McDonald also proposed extending the vote to Indigenous males. There's an Albert Camus quote that goes, The evil that is in the world always comes of ignorance, and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. I think it's important to look at McDonald's policies and views with a critical eye. This is important when looking at all historical figures, really. When I was studying archaeology during my undergrad, we were given an assignment where we were each assigned a book from the 1920s and 1930s that we had to find in the library and bring back to class. The terminology that archaeologists and anthropologists of the time used to describe Indigenous peoples not just in Canada but all over the world were horrific. People were described as primitive, they were barbaric, and that was the point of view that was acceptable at the time. Is it now? No, definitely not. But historical reflection requires nuance and the understanding that multiple things can be true at once. It's easy to want to burn down parts of the past that we no longer agree with and pretend that they never happen because they make us feel uncomfortable. But feeling uncomfortable is important. As we've seen over the past few years, it's when people feel too comfortable that their hoods come off. Sir John A. Macdonald was Prime Minister until his death on June 6, 1891 at the age of 76. Do you want to know who his successor was? Hugh Allen's lawyer, Sir John Abbott. Thank you for joining me on our first episode back in season two. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're going to enjoy our further exploration into great Canadian scandals. That's all I have for now. Until next time, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. You are the very best. See you later.